Ocean Hour with Keith Talbot and Larry Massett on Options from National Public Radio. seem like somebody who really understands the ocean, you know, really knows about it. No, no, I, I, don't, I don't think anybody is an expert on the ocean that's too big. It's like wondering if anybody's an expert on the planet, you know. Sometimes I, th I think about this, uh, this character, which I just invented, made up in my head. No, maybe it was going to be a book. Maybe it was just kind of a, you know, one of those imaginary friends that you have. <laughs> this was just my Walter Ego, my imaginary character who spent all of his days with the ocean. Where did he come from? I saw him at, in the first place as a kid and uh, figured that he grew up in one of those beach houses that you see they are built on stilts or pilings, and they're built right by the edge of the ocean, or what the architect thought was the edge of the ocean. And uh, <laughs> in this house, the ocean would actually come up under the house if it was a sufficiently high tide. And you could hear the ocean under the house slapping at the pilings. In fact, if you peek down through the cracks in the floorboard you could see the ocean under there slapping away kind of rolling back and forth and back and forth and back and forth sometimes it would be just right and the tide would be coming up just as he was going to bed you know it's a great sound to go to sleep to just like this pier a lot of people dock up here sailboats dock up here you can hear the clanging of the rigging and uh, the ropes banging up against the metal masts. Last year there was a Chinese junk docked up for a couple of days. That was only in your imagination? No, it was on the other side of the bridge. Whatever happened to his parents? His uh, mother, I always figured, was some sort of scientist. I mean, she was the one who was always telling him facts about the ocean and getting interested in it. I actually got the idea from um, Dr. Fish, actually. Marie Poland Fish. She's an actual scientist who spent years and years taping fish sounds under the water. It was fish going after fish. She started doing it because during World War II, when they first uh, started using sonar, the sonar people couldn't tell fish sounds from submarine sound. So she spent years taping fish sounds and cataloging them. And uh, They've been doing it for years. I guess there's, they're still doing it, I suppose. Uh. 
we've uh, tried to attract fishes by sound. I have some lovely stories, but I can't tell them to you because they're still top secret of the things that we've done underseas with sonar. But um, we take a fish or a group of one species, put it in a tank or an outside enclosure, and then what is the hardest thing of all, find out uh, what makes them sound off. We do all kinds of things to, to uh, bother them, giving them a tiny electric current or frightening them. Many fishes have a territorial sense, and uh, if their territory is invaded, they become vocally angry. I have one wonderful uh, record of a mother whale. Its baby had, was lost. Actually, the baby had died, and we'd taken it out of the top of the water. And uh, the mother didn't realize it had been taken away from her. And it was a nursing baby. But she made a sound which we had never recorded before or again searching for it. And she went around this outside pen. This was in the Bahamas, Bimini. She'd swim up and down and up and down and make these calling sounds for it. It has been figured that the myth of the Song of the Sirens originated in probably a breeding season chorus of croakers in the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, it was known by all the ancient mariners, apparently, that uh, it was a warning to stay And it probably was a very good warning, because they would be on a shoal, you see.
my idea was that his father was a diver, was a scuba diver, and it sort of shown him. Maybe he had taken the kid snorkeling or something, and sort of that the kid's idea was not to exploit the ocean, but to become a part of, of it, to sort of live in the ocean. But most skin divers, aren't they there mostly for a sense of adventure? Uh, people go skin diving or scuba diving for different reasons. Sometimes people go down there just because it is like an incredibly alien thing that's very beautiful and they want to become part of it. And other times people do go down for adventure or a cheap thrill or to see if they can get scared or to have an accident or to spearfish, you know, like it's that sort of sport for them sometimes. swim down uh, a coral canyon passageway that was filled with fish, beautiful fish of all kinds, and swim into a tunnel and come out at the top of a coral formation with uh, turrets and a moat around it and ledges around it. It reminded me of things I'd seen in Hieronymus Bosch and Bruegel paintings. simply a visitor on a very crowded ocean. You can swim with schools of huge grouper. You can swim in clouds of sort of silver sentence and, 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 and fish that you just don't expect to see, like big mackerel that remind you of sharks. Once in a while, there's a dolphin on the surface. It's just full of surprises. You go into a little arena. You go underwater. You find yourself a little town, a village, a hamlet, whatever you want to call it, where all this marine life is congregated. And you sort of sit there on a park bench and watch it all happen. If you sit there long enough, you'll see it all. Everything will come by and look at you curiously and uh, say hello. Oddly enough, there's one little fish called the damselfish. It's a cute little fish. It's maybe an inch or two long. And it comes in lots of little colors and has a face like a little poodle. It is the most ferocious fish I have ever encountered. When we were in Florida, everybody reported damselfish attacks. I was bitten in the head by a damselfish, and for some reason or another, I panicked, and my face mask flooded, and I might just as well have been hit by a shark.
I was about 60 feet below, hanging on the anchor as it sat on the bottom. They told me that at the drop-off edge itself, there would be three coral pillars called the Three Sisters. They were 30 to 40 feet high. I started down along the bottom toward the Coral Canyon. I was just tucking away the camera as I went down over the edge and down the, that canyon wall when all of a sudden I saw it. it. It came like a flash. It just came at me too quickly to be identified in any objective sense. But I knew it was a black tip shark and my reaction to it was nothing of what I had learned because all I had time to do was roll up into a field ball. The shark passed under me and the turbulence turned me around so that when I opened my eyes, I was facing back up the canyon wall and the shark made a hairpin turn and I saw his mouth kind of quiver and he was down at me again. Again, I just rolled up into a fetal ball. I felt the turbulence. shark attacks, typically the sharply pointed lower teeth enter the flesh first, then the jaw protrudes, and the serrated sharply pointed teeth of the upper jaw with bread knife-like edges grind down through the flesh as the head is shaken. One of my graduate students has shown that in a young lemon shark, four feet in length, they get a complete new dentition in the lower jaw and upper jaw every seven to eight days. We're interested in how rapidly this takes place in an adult shark. In the case of certain species, fortunately, they uh, let you know whether or not they dislike you and whether or not you might be invading their territory. For example, with the gray reef shark in the Pacific, it uh, arches its back lowers its pectorals, and uh, practically snarls at you, letting you know in no uncertain terms that you better get out of that environment. The shark hazard problem is primarily a psychological one. And there is an innate fear of being eaten alive that every human being, I'm, I suspect, shares. What is a shark? A shark is a fish with a skeleton of cartilage often hardened with deposits of calcium. It's a fish that has five separate gill exits, as a rule, on each side of the head. It's a fish that has sharply pointed placoid scales in contrast to the softer scales of bony fish, or teleosts. Those three characters will separate sharks from all other fish. The shark is, I think, above everything else, a hungry animal. Uh, and uh, its feeding pattern probably begins for most species at dusk, persists through the night, and lasts until early morning. Now, in the deeper waters, they undoubtedly feed right around the clock. 
uh, where there is complete darkness. A Navy sailor had gone out uh, swimming. He had gone out very, very far, and uh, and apparently he was attacked by a shark. And the shark took took an arm and took a, a, another piece of his midsection. And they had a lot of fishing boats and that sort of thing. And they shot out there really fast to try to get this guy. He was also very drunk, apparently. And they put him on the boat and they tried to bring him back to save him. And uh, it was obviously it was too late that he had bled to death by the time they got him in the boat. But uh, as the story goes on, what, what normally what the Frenchies would do if something like this would happen to someone is they would take some goats and gut them and take them out and drag them behind the boat, uh, one of their boats, and then they would have shotguns. And when the sharks would come to attack the goat, they would shoot them and then they would drag them into the boat and gut them and everything to find the parts of the person's body to bury them along with the person, which is apparently an old tradition. Well, in any case, they did find this shark after several that uh, had the parts of the, the, the fellow's uh, body in it, and they took him on the boat and gutted him. And uh, in the islands, the joke was that the, the sailor was wearing a, a watch, and when they brought the shark onto the boat and, and gutted him and everything like that, uh, one of the gentlemen that was on the boat at the time was relating the story to a friend, and he said, well, you know, we, we, we find an arm and we... we we find the other parts of the body, man, and, and on the arm, you know, the man he have on the Timex and the watch is still ticking, man. It's still ticking, the watch still ticking. syndrome. All divers have this, whether they like to admit it or not. The Nemo syndrome, I call it. The Nemo syndrome. This is a fascination with the underwater world coupled with an irrational desire to be a part of it. You suddenly submit. All divers have in the back of their minds, well, you know, if worse comes to the worst, I can always make that one final dive, that biggie, you know, that thousand footer from which you don't return. We all live with that kind of arrogant way of doing away with ourselves that nobody will ever see and everybody will envy. I think you get that first in your mind and then you, uh, you're on your way to the Nemo, real serious case of Nemo syndrome. Terminal stage of Nemo syndrome is when someone begins to not only invest their free time into this but uh, the free time of others. They tend to pull others along with them into the deep. Thank you. 
It's not easy to make a buck out of the ocean if you don't want to do it in a high-technology way, if you don't want to go down there to the bottom and rip up the oil and rip up the manganese nodules. There are people who survive by catching rare tropical fish and they ship it off to tropical fish stores, killing 90% of the fish along the way, but never mind. And to biology classes. All right, there is a market for shark livers, say, or there is a market for a particular kind of shrimp which somebody is studying for God knows what reason. Here he's gulping air. And now he's gonna to start to, to swell up. And you hear the jaws? See, now what you're seeing, what you're about to see, is he will start to inflate, providing Now he's getting bigger and bigger, and you see the spines sticking out. And now the purpose of that, if you were, if you were a predator and you grabbed him and he started out small and got big like a balloon, then you'd have this mouthful of spines and you'd pretty quickly let go. And now he's got a he's got a problem having to deflate. So when we put him in the water, he's got to force all that air or water out of him. Our large concrete tank is about uh, 16 feet in diameter, and uh, this is where we keep our rock bass. You know, rock bass are really interesting fish; they're very aggressive. Now, here and here, there's one of the piranhas 
back like piranhas sitting here trying to feed on this squid. And you can actually get them biting to where they can actually, you can sometimes lift them completely out of the water like that one. <laughs> and uh, they don't mind, they just, just kind of come in and take whatever. I've got to keep my fingers out of this tank, that's uh, one thing. Back in the good old days when we used to have sea turtles in here, I used to have a lot of problems because the phone would ring and I'd be talking on the phone and, you know, I'd get kind of nervous, absent-minded or whatever else it is and just kind of, yeah, well, I'll tell you whether we can buy so many nudibranchs or we can sell you this and that and I'll reach my hand in the water and next thing you know, chomp, and there's this turtle hanging onto my fingers. And <laughs> So we used to have to beat the turtles on the head and eventually try, we conditioned ourselves not to put our hands in the water. We found we couldn't condition the turtles. So, uh, but the, but worse than the turtles, or these rock bass, which is a sea bass. And these things are so greedy and so insatiable when it comes to getting something that the way that you can act actually catch them is you can bait up a hook and a line, drop it down, and they will uh, swallow not only the hooks, but also the sinkers. I've literally caught these things on sinkers and hauled them up. This imaginary friend that you've created to help understand the ocean. Yeah, Billy. Billy. His name is Billy? His name is, yeah, I don't know why. It was just a just an ordinary kid name. I thought you would have some fancy name. No. It was not gonna be a hardback book. He saw so much in the ocean that he didn't think other people saw. And he had the idea of starting like an Atlantisland park. It started out like it was going to be very serious, and he was just going to create an, an artificial Caribbean sea. Okay, for everyone on Chris's tour, this is a highly restricted area. You need to expose your uh, green name tags, okay? In the case of those three people, just the blue ones, that'll be fine. Let's meet in front of the purple octopus on the trash can, okay? Hey, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the world of the sea. My name is Tammy, and I'll be your hostess throughout our meeting presentation. Now, in front of you all are about 167,000 gallons of SeaWorld manufactured salt water, which always being recycled and kept at 70 degrees. The replicas of the Caribbean reformations are all designed to provide our 500 creatures with a home, just like they have in their natural habitat. The reef community is a complex ecosystem where each plant and animal are dependent upon each other for food and survival. Ladies and gentlemen, now joining our 500 creatures is one of our very lovely aquamates, and her name is Lisa. Lisa has lettuce in her hand, but she will be feeding them. She's breathing through the second stage of a regulator. They finally had to add this sort of artificial beach, and you could go out, and they had artificial sand, and, and artificial surf, and artificial sun. It was stocked, and you could go out and catch fish, and you could bring it back, and there was a taxidermist right there. And they would stuff it for you right on the spot. This is a new method of taxidermy, more or less. Yeah, I think probably this is the only one in the state that's in operation right now, as far as freeze-dried method. This completely takes everything out of the fish. Uh, all the water it extracts and uh, 
It's a vacuum like the freeze-dried uh, food you have. Your meat that's completely freeze-dried, you put it in water, and it comes back up. Well, this is the same process. It just takes everything out. Uh, like your big bass, uh, they'll start out maybe eight or nine pounds when they get finished. Everybody loved that. It sort of made him, Billy got a little sick about that. They had a California tidal pool. They had like plastic kelp and starfish and you could touch them and so on. His business managers kind of ran away with them and, and it, it was disastrous. I mean, he, it was just awful. He had trained dolphins and he had trained whales and stuff. And if you get the two dolphins lined up, and harness them somehow, then the guy skis on their back. The thing about dolphins is that you can train them, but they're, but they're very, very smart. And if they get bored, they'll change the act right in the middle of the act so that the trainer is kind of left there. Good luck! village of sponge fishermen and uh, they would have the boats go out into this sort of artificial thing and, and they would do this whole bit about how dangerous it was. They would have this guy dressed up in a big rubber suit with a huge brass helmet and he would go diving in this artificial pond. It was murky and then he would take the sponge out of his pocket and come back up at the top holding it up so look He's found the sponge, he found the sponge, and everybody would clap, and then he would come back to the boat, and they would pass it around, and it would squeal, because it was a messy, live sponge. And then they would go back to the dock, and you could buy nice, dry sponges. Billy meant well, you know, he just found out that to make money, you just keep having to throw more, more and more money after it. And he also realized that he was trying to control the ocean. That, that way he was trying to pick little fantasies out of the ocean and make nice little packages out of them and put them on dry, dry earth, which violated his real interest in the ocean. Like it doesn't, the whole project doesn't really sound like something that Billy would have wanted to do anyway. Not the way it ended up, no. That was not the way he really thought about it. The ocean. What was the public reaction to, to Atlantis land, to the lost continent? The tourists loved it. I think the people who lived close to it weren't all that keen on it. I became an environmentalist is I was collecting sea anemones, those beautiful pink, uh, pink and white uh, pastel creatures that we saw in the tanks. And I was down in the Florida Keys, and I was, you know, picking them up and putting them into my bucket. And I heard this rude putter, 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 clatter, grind, growl of the bulldozer. And uh, 
that's what's happening. And I saw this big machine, this front end loader, digging up the ground and pushing the fill out onto the flat. And as I was walking and picking up these anemones, I was actually feet in front of this bulldozer, desperately picking these things up and putting them in my bucket and getting them out of the way, knowing that what was taking place was terminal. No fish, no lobster, no crabs, no snail, no anything would ever come back to that area again. It was being buried. Very soon, that's all going to be underwater. You know, sea level has risen and fallen, and someday the worms will be eating the pilings here. All this thing will be growing, will be a living dock by itself. The ocean has washed away the sins in the past, you know. That goes back to biblical times, and uh, I had a real interesting thought about that. It occurs to me, we were taking a canoe trip down the Oclockney River, which feeds out over here. And this was miles up on the Georgia line, and we were traveling down there, and we were, you know, paddling for miles and miles and miles. And it was through willows and all sorts of sandbars, really pretty, pretty stuff up there. And then we finally were about to come to the landing. We didn't know we were hitting the landing at the time, and we heard singing and chanting and hallelujahs, and, you know, it just sort of sounded like something was African. It was, it was, a, it was a black church and they were having the baptism going on. We came around this scene and there was the, um, the girls dressed in white and the preacher was there and he would take them and he would dip them under. And as soon as he did, it was some the spirit had just taken them over. They began to you know, quake and shiver and just really get into it. There was something that was, that was very powerful taking place. And you'd see somebody says, no, I ain't, I ain't going in there, you know, like that. And that was not my time. And they'd finally talk to him, and then the singing and the chanting would get to him, and they'd kind of walk him over and dip him in and pull him out. And you'd just see a remarkable change that took place. And it was just almost wanting to draw me into the whole thing. It was just sort of hypnotic after a while. I kept thinking about that and said, all right, for ages, man has thrown his sins into the rivers. So the river carries it down to the sea. And here are all these, this, this ocean is sort of teeming with sins, and it seemed to me that maybe the sins, like the detritus that's carried down the river, you have leaves and sticks and, uh, you know, grasses and all that part of the natural food chain that shrimp and fish and everything else eat. Maybe there's some sort of uh, oh, metaphysical approach, like the sins doing the same thing. These sins are brought down, and maybe they're even absorbed into the marsh grasses. Maybe there are things out there that even eat sins. And, um, then it occurs to me that the sins sit there and we have bonding systems in nature where marsh grasses and, and uh, bay systems and mudflats are absorbing these sins. And then along comes man again, and he's ripping up the marshes and tearing them all to pieces and dredging out canals and he's liberating the sins. And in a sense he does because we have suddenly put in shopping centers, we've put in low you know, cost, high density housing, we've increased crime rate. It's hotter because the trees are gone. It stinks. It's just got, everybody's kind of miserable. People are crowded up. They're tense because there's cars, there's noise, there's pollution, there's traffic, there's highway noise, there's tension, there's everything else like that. And thus, we create sin. We breed sin. So if we would leave our coasts and our beaches and our environment natural, which we're not going to do, it's taken me a lot of years to realize we are in a progression course with doom. We are doing it.
uh, a tent sitting on top of a spoil bank with the wind blowing from all directions, as you can see. Uh, you hear the tent flapping. Uh, you saw down in the uh, trailer a while ago, they're cooking food that we caught today. We live in the mountains in Georgia at Rome, and you could take 25 people into the mountains there for two weeks and try to feed them, and you simply could not find enough food. That area is not productive enough, but here where we have the interface of the ocean and the land coming together, then we've got ideal situation for great food sources. So I think that, that this is where our ancestors got most of their human characteristics. Posteriorly pointed nose, for example, designed for perfect swimming. Uh, the is just one of them. Vision for sessile objects, non-moving objects. If you're gathering your food by feeling for clams and so forth and looking for clams in the bottom of the water, you develop acute vision for sessile, non-moving things. The hunting organisms have an acute vision for moving things. We could throw a, a bone to that dog and he could catch it in the air because he could see it and you and I couldn't, literally couldn't see it very well moving in the air. Uh, if we had evolved as hunting organisms primarily, our vision would be for moving things rather than for sessile things. Uh, and we've got so good at it that we can read a book, uh, which is going a long way. Here is a scrounger's life. Everything is like a, a beachcomber. You can actually, I have lived as poor as a man can live and still survive in the United States of America in the 1970s because everything comes here somehow, sooner or later. Wood, oysters, uh, the various other fish that you can get for the asking. Mullet, which is the big good-eating fish around here, along with trout and catfish, which come from the rivers. You have the river cat and the saltwater cat. They seem to be cousins, but they taste a little different. And in addition to all of that, you get the kinds of things that the sea brings, which is uh, from boats. Uh, there's always a certain amount of uh, movement of cargo in boats, as well as fish. And firewood around here is for the asking. In a city like New York or Washington, firewood, I'm sure, costs $100 a truckload. $200 around here, you can go out and fill it up for nothing. There is a theory, for example, in uh, archaeology that all of the early settlements were on the coast of man, but that's where the easiest life has always been, where everything was for the taking, and you had the sea and you had the land together and the various uh, mutations between them, and that's where food chains like to start, where you have that, uh, that melting land or that uh, solidifying water, that's where the organisms get their start, especially if you have the right climate. As a poor man, it means that things are coming to me which don't happen very much in the prairie or in the big cities. You don't, nothing comes to your door in a big city except a cop or a taxi driver or something, but here things actually come to your door. I have a house full of found objects, and they get more beautiful all the time, and every day I pick up something all kinds of shells and, and driftwood, trees, 
this enormous number of things that nature pre presents to you. This coast gives a way of life that is really almost, this is like a myth to me. If you can imagine living like the 19th century, 18th century, Thoreau could have lived here. Thoreau could still live here. And yet most people in America think that it has gone, and yet we're in a time warp here, temporarily, because as you see, it's going, it's going hourly right now. Now what we're going to do is we're going to take off that big crusher claw carefully. Oh, oh. No, I didn't do that right. But commercial fishermen are allowed to take off both claws, right? That's right. But it, um, Pat Bird um, says that it's really sad they can't take care of themselves without both claws. And, um, you want to try that one? Yeah. Right there, right? Point to it. Right there. They're hard, aren't they? Oh. Try pulling back this way, Katie. No, no. no. You gotta, oh. You gotta go it. Now I've lost the. Um, That's all right. He's not going to make it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Here. You You're really a nice person there, Katie. <laughs> He's not going to make it. One of, the, uh, one of the things that they say about this laboratory is that they find it very difficult to establish a laboratory animal because the director is always accused of <laughs> eating the animals. <laughs> Thank you. 
you can look into the future 10 years and say, where is science going to go 10 years from now? We believe that 10 years from now, biomedical research will be concentrating on genetic research, that the solution of medical problems will be genetic solutions. As a consequence of that, we're in the process of raising the funds to hire eight new PhDs at the laboratory, all of them dedicated to genetic research using marine organisms. On the one hand, we believe that by genetic manipulation of marine organisms, we may in fact improve the stock of marine animals. And that's a far-fetched idea, but I think it's practical and feasible. And secondly, we, from that, we plan to utilize the information that we will gain from that in terms of man, in terms of genetic, because it's going to be genetic manipulation. We feel that what we learn will be applicable to genetic research on humans. Billy's ultimate fantasy naturally was to live under the ocean, and he tried to join the uh, Navy, which at one point was trying to build actual uh, undersea habitats. It was sort of domes. It was called saturation diving. It was called habitat diving. Sea Lab had various names. It was the early 60s. Cousteau was doing it. A lot of people were doing it, and the Navy got into it. They had people breathing strange gas mixtures. If you're down below 200 feet, you can't breathe ordinary air. They have to add a lot of helium to it and so on. The idea was to sort of set up little tiny habitats under the water where people could stay for two weeks, three weeks. The ultimate fantasy behind that was to colonize the ocean, to really live under the water all, all of the time and somehow reverse the evolutionary cycle through technology and go back to the oceans. Uh, can you hear me, operator? Yes, we can. Now, Scott, will you speak, please? Yes, how do you hear me, operator? Uh, not too well, sir. Well, bear in mind, operator, that my voice will sound quite uh, different. I'm in a chamber with a uh, helium atmosphere, so the frequency of my voice is quite high. Yes, it is. Uh, that is not a telephone connection problem. That's just the uh, result of uh, my speaking from a pressurized chamber uh, in a helium atmosphere. Do you understand? Yes, I understand. 
deeper dives than we did, uh, much more dangerous dives than we made. And they come out and there's not even anybody there to say hello. But by the time Billy got into it, they had already canceled the whole show because it was too expensive and what they went to actually what they do now is they do the whole thing on dry land sort of like you know atlantis land only they simulate everything they have this, this huge building called the ocean simulation facility
Uh, they take all the readings, all the temperature and uh, pressure differential readings. Uh, you can see over here that it's, it's you went out down into the wet pod and you did your test on the extra cycle or whatever it's called. That's right. Underwater, underwater Right. We just saw it from the outside. That's right. It's just a means of simulating work at various workloads. I can't help asking if you feel a little bit foolish or strange or something, you know, when you're sitting in this huge, huge tank pumping an extra cycle at, uh, you know, 600 feet uh, simulated death. Not really. I, I guess being a diver, we all appreciate why we're doing it. Plus, it's a tremendous challenge. Uh, maybe you might even call it kind of from an ego standpoint because you stay in the water for extended periods of time, like perhaps five hours, maybe six hours, oh, wow. pedaling the bicycle off and on the whole time. Right. And so it's a challenge, you know, it, everybody's trying to beat each other out. <laughs> it's good-humored stuff, and it makes us produce, and it's just, it, it works out pretty well. Where is Billy today? It's a pretty good question. I don't know what became of him. Wasn't there something about him being mixed up with the CIA? I don't know if he... You know, it's, I suspect that there's a lot of underwater technology that's top secret. There's bound to be because submarines play such an important part in the whole nuclear destruct system. You could have probably gotten him to do anything if you could have offered him some piece of equipment or gear or technology that would say, hey, you can get a little bit closer to being a fish man, or, you know, you can stay under a little bit longer. He was always willing to compromise, you know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. No, I haven't heard from him in a while. Ocean Hour was written and produced by Keith Talbot and Larry Massett. The music for Ocean Hour was written and performed by Larry Massett. Technical director, Skip Peasy. If you would like a cassette recording of Ocean Hour, please mail $5 and check your money order made out to National Public Radio. The address is Options, National Public Radio, 2025 M Street, Northwest, Washington, D.C and the zip is 20036. That address again for your cassette of Ocean Hour, the cost, $5, is Options, National Public Radio, 2025 M Street, Northwest, Washington, D.C., the zip, 20036. Production assistance for Ocean Hour by Jerry Calkins and Pamela Corpusis. Technical assistance by Jude Franco, and Greg Hedgepath, and on drums, Henry Dennis. 
Funds for this radio experience were provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. For options, I'm Mike Waters. And this is NPR, National Public Radio.